0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the SBAI podcast series. The SBAI has been around since our alternative investment standards were created for asset managers back in 2008. Since then we've evolved into an active alliance of over 150 asset managers and 95 institutional investors dedicated to improving industry outcomes. This episode is a continuation of our founder series where leading institutional allocators interview some of the founders of the SBAI as we look back to how it all started and how the industry is evolving.
1: Hello, my name is Paul Winslow. I'm a SMD, Senior Managing Director of CPP Investments and also a trustee of the SBAI. Today we're going to talk about the SBAI, hedge funds, investment managers, investment strategies and the industry in general. And with me here today, I have Stuart Firtz, uh president of Shane Capital and also a trustee of the SBAI board. Stuart. Welcome, and uh, why don't you say a little bit more about yourself,
2: Paul? Thank you very much, and welcome, listeners, and uh, thank you for giving us this opportunity to speak with you. As Paul said, I'm a co-founder and president of Cheney Capital. We're a London-based alternative asset manager with ten billion dollars in AUM. We started in two thousand, and today our three largest areas of activity for our 164 employees are direct European real estate lending, the recapitalization of stress to European SMEs, and the harvesting of credit premia through single-name CDS on investment grade and crossover credit.
1: Thanks, Stuart. And before we get into the discussion here, maybe just a few words about myself here. As I said, I'm with uh, CPP Investments is a $400 billion pension fund located in Canada with a global focus, so headquartered in Toronto, but uh, with offices around the world. I am the uh, the Global Head of Capital Markets and Factor Investing, which is basically the capital markets activities, and then our uh, investments in alternatives, absolute return strategies, which is about 10% of the fund. CPP Investment joined SBAI in 2015. So on that note, let's talk a little bit more about SBAI or the hedge fund standard boards, as it was called in the early days. In 2008, HFSB was founded. And as we all recall, this was in a time of a lot of uncertainty, but also a lot of industry pressure in the alternative investment uh, industry from regulators. So at that time, a number of managers founded HFSB, and later on in 2010, there was added an investor chapter for investors like CPP Investments. Stuart, you were there at that time, and you were involved in in founding of the SBAI. Tell us more about it.
2: Well, I think, uh, Paul, as you rightly pointed out, we were really quite concerned that hedge funds were being Erroneously blamed for causing the great financial crisis. And we were concerned that if we didn't act, we'd be buried under poor regulation. And indeed, investors would be denied access to alternatives. And this was at a point in time when alternatives had outperformed naked equities and were doing what they were meant to be doing. So we said, let's get together. Let's get our story out there and make it clear to policymakers and regulators what we are doing, lift some of the veil of secrecy that had developed around hedge funds and set ourselves up for a much more transparent future.
1: Yeah, I can certainly relate and remember (laughs) to those days. And as an investor, we were at that time just starting our focus on hedge funds investments. And as such, we at that time were too new in the game to actually join HFSB. But certainly it was a concern that, that there would have been changes to the industry also from our side why do you think it's important that investors have access to these alternatives?
2: Well, Paul, I think all too often the return-enhancing role of alternatives is dismissed. In fact, there are real-world consequences of foregoing incremental returns. A low return translates directly into less teachers, less firemen, and less investment by companies into new technologies and into priorities like climate transition. On top of that, I fear that we're facing a looming retirement crisis where the promises made in the past will be hard to meet, and the amounts of cash being set aside today will just simply prove insufficient. So we need to have the tools to, or investors need to have the tools to be able to reach for those extra returns to meet those obligations.
1: Yeah, that also resonates a lot with me, <laughs> being on the investor side, having seen the, the classic 60-40 portfolio being challenged, and maybe even more so today, the uh, the use of alternatives in, in portfolio construction have definitely been not only for the return side, as you point to, but also as a mean of uh, diversification overall to our strategies. So I can certainly relate to that. But you've seen a lot here over these years since the Stand was founded. What has really changed here over these years?
2: Well, I think Paul, you've highlighted a few key ones. Indeed, we started as a working group drawn from the principles from the leading European hedge funds, and as we overcame the initial hesitation of U.S. general counsels, we were able to get U.S. managers deeply involved. And then, of course, the development of the initial standards led us to establishing the hedge fund standards board, and. Then those two significant steps were taken, uh, much as you pointed out, that we expanded, we put in place the principle that the board would become evenly balanced between investors and allocators. And that was, of course, a critical step to enhancing the credibility of our voice and helping us to shape investor behavior, manager behavior, and to help regulators and policymakers understand the industry more generally. And I think the other step that, that we took was to change the name from Hedge Fund Standards Board to Standards Board for Alternative Investments to reflect the applicability and usefulness of our standards to a much wider range of alternative strategies and asset classes. And I think that's been a huge success.
1: So we've been part of SBI since 2015. And even that period of time, we have seen that expansion of strategies that we now categorize as alternatives. And there's a much broader reach, but with the same purpose And as such, definitely benefiting a broader range of managers. But on that note, why do you think it's beneficial to have a safe space for managers and investors to address the challenges together?
2: Paul, I think we all need to recognize that we're in a shared ecosystem where we all will benefit from a well-functioning, fair and transparent industry out there. It, it of course... It makes sense to have a place where investors and managers can have a meaningful conversation and develop common ground. And this just as isn't possible in a commercial setting or via the voices of traditional trade bodies. I think, as I mentioned earlier, the credibility of, of our voice is clearly enhanced by the inclusion of investors policymakers and regulators indeed find it much harder to push back on what we are saying if we've got the endorsement of investors. That's been a real game changer for us.
1: In terms of working together, investors and managers, I definitely seen the benefit. Although I will say that at least here at CPP, we have always looked at the managers as our partners. But here in the SBAI, uh, it it has a much wider range. And I will say SBAI has even brought us uh, closer to our peers on the investor side, not to forget that. Is, is that something you have uh, seen as well on the manager side?
2: I think we as managers recognize that we're calling out for investors to speak up about their interest in alternatives, about the importance that they have for both return enhancement, as we talked about, and diversification, as you mentioned. So it's, a, it's been a big change to really get the big name investors to be able to put effectively put down on paper without taking too much risk on their side to help us get our point across, if you will.
1: So let's talk about investments a bit here. We all know that we are seeing as we speak very volatile markets. There are risks probably as never before seen and and a question around uh, are we entering like a maybe even a new regime for investments and in the economies? How do you go about finding inefficiencies in these kind of markets?
2: Well, I think fundamentally, we look for those segments of the markets that are structurally undercapitalized, and we may be exploiting regulation, complexity, or investor biases and constraints, or indeed a combination thereof. If I could just take one example, let's consider direct real estate loans here in Europe. Here, bank regulation has dramatically increased the regulatory capital needed for this type of loan. The origination and management of such loans requires a large and experienced team. And finally, investors are still unsure whether this type of loan should be put into their real estate bucket or their credit bucket. And for many uh, investors, this remains a, a, an open uh, debate. When we expand that across our other areas of activity, uh, we find similar inefficiencies in direct lending uh, to recapitalize stressed uh, stress European SMEs and in the use of credit default swaps. Today's market conditions, we don't think are gonna change those inefficiencies.
1: You talked about like from the investor perspective where to put those types of investments. Do you find that the investors are not receptive of the ideas because uh, they are a bit more siloed?
2: I think Paul, generally we find that one or the other party will be very receptive to it. And then there's an institutional constraint or a debate that has to take place. And sometimes that silo is not broken down and we sit there waiting or hoping that they'll come to a conclusion. I think we're talking about marginal flows of capital. Of course, there there are many investors that have figured it out. That's why we're one amongst many originators and managers of this type of loan. But I think oftentimes it's where the Venn diagram doesn't quite cross over organizationally. That's where the opportunities are going to be richest. If in the core areas, and I think one reason why you see such dramatic correction in some of these equities is that it's very easy to put money into equities. And so a lot of money chases it and surprise, there's a very strong correlation when there's risk off. So we like to look for those areas that are a little bit harder to get the institutional investor to back, but therefore it's a generally richer opportunity.
1: I think that is a, a very good point. And I think from the investor perspective, it's all investors. It's very much a question about having that flexibility or agility to quickly change and focus in your organization. And I would say personally, CPP as an example, is doing both in-house and external manager uh, managers with investments, but Co-investments have actually shown out to be a a very strong strategy to pursue where you can have that agility and flexibility that might not go within the more traditional silo within an organization. So uh, it's a very interesting and strong point that you can exploit those inefficiencies with the right
2: mindset. Mm -hmm. The right mindset and the right skill set.
1: And the right skill set, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about talent and diversity. And there's been a lot of focus on yeah, both talent retention in these markets, as an example, and just the focus after working from home the scenarios, but also, of course, diversity and the importance. What are the skills that are needed in your mind going forward?
2: Paul, I think you're absolutely right. Beyond the recognition that diversity along the traditional lines of race and gender is a matter of social justice, there's a widespread understanding here at Cheney that Cognitive diversity leads to better outcomes, both for investors and for our business. And there's an understanding that in order to truly reap those benefits, you need to have effective diversity. And we focus a lot on thinking about and implementing ways of capturing that diversity, making it work, making sure that quiet voice is not drowned out by the more extrovert on the team or drowned out by the senior person on the team to ensure that the senior person's ideas are not anchored into the subsequent discussion. So the senior person speaks last, tries to bite their tongue and draw out the inputs from across the full team. We found that once you start focusing on it, you can find lots of different levers to pull on that side. It's fun to to work on that.
1: Do you focus on talent from early years? Is that where it begins?
2: I think as a matter of contributing to the industry, as a matter of social justice, we are engaged with student-level insight days. We've got an internship program coming up this summer with SEO London, where we have accepted a number of underprivileged, underrepresented candidates to get them onto the the track, if you will. They, They may or may not end up with a job here. So it is important to reach out to a wide range of individuals and to invest in them. I'd say historically hedge funds have done very well recruiting talent from banks or from other hedge funds that have broken them. But I think in today's competitive labor market, you have to focus even more on that homegrown talent and be willing to accept people earlier on in their careers and mold them. And that may lead to a little bit higher turnover in the future as these individuals like to pick up a little bit more experience, a variety of places with that. So it's not always fun in that regard. But on the other hand, that's a compliment when somebody gets hired away.
1: I can certainly relate to building up talent in the early years is really important, but also to the fact that diversity is extremely important in terms of better decision-making when you have a diverse set of backgrounds, not just on, on gender, but also across multiple dimensions. On a more technical or educational side, have you seen a shift in the types of backgrounds that you're looking at?
2: I like to think that we're coming from a fairly diverse educational background. My business partner for the last 30 years has a degree in comparative uh, literature, and I've got a degree in political science and economics. We've always been open to a full range of backgrounds. We are trying harder to recruit from a wider range of universities, with it not to be quite set or so dogmatic about what schools somebody has to go to. That might be a reflection that now most of us have had kids apply to university. It's not always so easy. The most talented kids, clearly, don't always get into the right school, so to speak. So yeah, it's a conscious effort. And we tell our recruiters that we want to see a wider range of people. And as I said, we've been using some external organizations to help accelerate that. And we've been really excited by the quality of the candidates that we're seeing. So it's it's a good process that's well underway.
1: As an investor, I see a lot of presentations, and it's hard to not see something around AI or machine learning. Is that the future?
2: I don't think so. With that, I think that, I suppose, true AI, it is very difficult for the manager to explain what the machine did. And I think once you get to that lack of accountability, the more black box type behavior, I think it puts you and your investors in a very difficult situation when things go wrong.
1: Yeah. I do hear you. We are all on the journey and to some degree, most managers and investors will use uh, machine learning and it will be part of a strategy. But again, I guess that's the trick. How do you get it to work with uh, both fundamental and quantitative types of strategies? Is there some kind of a ground there of usage, but that is to be seen.
2: I think on the machine side, it's clear that on the private side of the market, there is an ever-increasing amount of information that you need to capture and track. And when you have a private loan facility and you include in there a, a revolver and maybe some other pieces in there, that if you start to add up all the data points that you need to crunch at all times, actually the data crunching requirement on the private side is greater than what we find on the public public side. And that may be counterintuitive with it. It's just that there isn't enough data to unleash an AI approach to trying to become a better lender or a better investor, at least from where we are today. But yes, the data investment has to be there and investors need that transparency and we as managers need that transparency to justify valuations, to manage the asset, manage the recovery if it gets to that point on that side and to construct the portfolio itself and risk manage it.
1: That's absolutely fair points. Let's move on. We cannot have a conversation like this without talking about ESG. Tell us about how you approach ESG and the usage.
2: Yeah, I think if I just take you back, we launched a a social property impact fund back in 2014, and we went through a process of debating whether that was compatible with a, if you will, red-blooded hedge fund or alternative asset manager. We came to an understanding that you could take these factors into account. You could even structure an impact fund that was targeted at generating market plus returns, and really completing that triangle of risk return and impact in a constructive way. So the launch of that fund and the success of that fund then drove the whole organization to embrace a wider, more enlightened approach, if you will, to, to ESG. We've of course been following that the transition ESG from ESG as a risk factor to ESG as an expression of morals, really around the idea of exclusion lists to today where you're expected to Be able to link your investment to making an impact, and indeed measuring that impact. So it's an evolving set of challenges, if you will, an evolving set of investor desires or even investor restrictions. And some markets is still deemed to be a a dereliction of fiduciary duty if you take into account something squishy like ESG into your investment decision. So we've had to temper it. We take an approach of constant dialogue, understanding where we are. We press forward in those areas where we think we can, can. Contribute to the debate. We've been working uh, quite hard in a couple of areas to uh, develop ESG questionnaires that are agreed by a range of actors. So, for example, on the private credit side, it doesn't make any sense for a company to have one ESG questionnaire that they provide to the private equity owner and another one that they provide to the private debt holder it should be the same document if you will and the same data to ensure consistency but also to keep the cost down because there is a cost to society of gathering this data and also to really keep the naysayers at bay if you will because the more whenever there's an inefficiency they'll use that to say this is a waste of time if you can end up with better data and get that data at a good price we will end up in a better place
1: that's a very fair description here your comments about ESG focus going from, from risk factor to to more moral consideration and then impact investing now. Yes, I think we can all see that we have been on a journey and at probably at various speeds in Europe compared to the rest of the world. Do you think we have reached a tipping point where ESG is actually the return driver?
2: I think... ESG as a risk factor is uh, has been there and is increasing as a risk factor given the lack of progress that we've had through the cajoling or the forcing of investment managers to direct money towards a transition. So I think the risk of a discontinuity coming out of government policy is increasing whether that's a carbon tax a general carbon tax on a wider set of industries, whether it's a carbon tax at the borders, which we've got implemented here in Europe. So you have to imagine that ESG in in that form is definitely driving returns, because to me, returns and and risk are uh, inexorably linked from an investment point of view with it. I think that the strong performance of fossil fuels uh, post-invasion of Ukraine has set back the argument, certainly set back the data that uh, ESG investing outperforms non-ESG investing. And I think at the same time, there's a recognition that we have to achieve a just transition. So the definition of ESG investing is rebalancing a little bit away from what had been, in in our view, a very narrow focus on the climate side to include the social side, that it's all great to save the planet, but if you starve to death in the meantime or you freeze to death in the meantime, that's a real negative and a cost that we have to take into account. So I think we're probably in the future, we won't say ESG investing from a risk factor because that should be fully integrated. ESG from a moral issue is a little bit harder to find a global standard on that. We have an approach here in the UK that the gambling is a clean industry, whereas in some areas gambling is definitely a sector that, that you almost start from gambling, alcohol, tobacco as, as your starting point. There's a lot of work to be done to to get ourselves to a point where we all agree or we find the common ground. Investment factors are something that you measure over decades and the academics come through and it's too early in that sense to, to be able to say it's a investable risk premia. But it's certainly something you have to take into account in your assessment it- it shapes capital flows into sectors at the real economy level it drives flows into sectors certainly in, from our perspective seem at times quite overvalued because there's too much money chasing the finished good when what we really need is more money coming in at the ground level to to say build new solar panels we can't all chase operating assets we've got to drive the uh, investment on the ground into or on water into uh, into the deployment of that capital and I I I think it's easy to see that capital getting ahead of where it should be, and that's going to mean lower returns for people that come in at those highs. So I wouldn't invest on an ESG basis blindly. I would keep very squarely my investment glasses on, if you will.
1: Yeah, certainly those flows that you're talking about impacted returns. And I guess at the end of the day, a lot of investors have taken an approach of divestments that has has caused this. But you also see now increasingly a focus on the being part of the transition and looking at this as a driver.
2: It's interesting you talk about divestment. The supporters of divestment are probably the same people that think that offsets are not effective. And I don't really understand that thinking. Offsets drive revenue that is then put into achieving that transition. Selling a dirty asset out of a motivated investor's hands into a uh, investor who clearly has... Less interest in transitioning that asset, or by all appearances, seems to have less interest. It can't be the right answer with it. But we think constructive engagement is important, as we think offsets are an important way to drive meaningful change on the ground.
1: Do you see that as a focus that is stronger in Europe than
2: outside? There's a lot of disjointed thinking and disjointed policy here in Europe. For all the talk about how forward-thinking we are, if we take a look at the classification of Article 8 and Article 9 funds, Article 9 funds are supposed to be the deepest green funds out there. We've got lawyers telling us that you cannot include social housing that is under construction in that fund and deem it to be a green fund. Because until it's completed and tenants have moved, in, it's not providing a social good. By the same token, the whole idea is to attract money to invest in this transition. We need investment in this transition. I don't have the, the sums to hand, but the billions and billions of pounds, euros, dollars that need to be spent need to be driven into this market. So if it's all it's doing is driving money to buy existing assets, then we're not achieving the transition that, that we need to have to a more just society. So I think clearly one can point to the U.S. and see that the state level more is being done than at the national level. And in Europe, we have a bit more activity at the European Commission level, but it's not perfect <laughs> and, and anywhere I look. And there's need for good people, so to speak, to get engaged and move it to the right spot we, that we need to get to.
1: I'm curious to hear around your firm's uh, community involvement.
2: Well, thank you, Paul, for asking that question because we're really excited about what we're doing. One of the opportunities that came out of our social property impact fund was a request to come into a local London community and speak to young students about the city of London in terms of the finance sector and for many people in that area that was the first time they had seen a what they call us bankers but we know that we're let's say little b bankers with that and we generated quite a bit of excitement a lot of great feedback explaining what we in finance are trying to do how we move money from one place to another and you can get both a good from an investment in a new property or a company's expansion and then work towards a, a more favorable retirement later in the their career. We've also sat down and uh, set up a couple of information days with uh, Gain, Girls as Investors, and got some really nice feedback on that side. And uh, unfortunately, COVID had delayed it, but we're excited about uh, the launch of our internship program. Uh, It's uh, a lot easier than it might seem initially if you think you're a small firm.
1: That's great. I want to go back to the investment side. One observation around Chain Capital is that over the last five years, you have grown your private assets or investments quite strongly, which is something we have seen as investors among Momo funds. Is this the norm or with all the dislocations we now see in public markets. Is this the, maybe not the decade of public markets, but maybe a couple of years here with opportunities that you would re-emphasize your focus on public strategies?
2: Paul, I think that's a great question. And we certainly have started the internal debate about uh, whether public markets have corrected enough. And by public markets, we'd include over-the-counter traded liquid credit, if you will. And at this stage, we've concluded that investment grade credit spreads are attractive, but we think there's a number of shoes, maybe a whole suitcase still to drop on the below investment grade credit markets, particularly in leveraged loans that have held up well because they're floating rate instruments and they don't seem to reflect in our view what we think is going to be a lethal combination of very weak covenants and a challenging economic environment where higher interest rates, even if the floating rate aspect helps in the short run, it obviously hurts at the time of reinvestment where you've got disrupted or unreliable supply chains, which mean the companies need a lot more money, not just for capex, but for working capital because you have to hold bigger inventory. You have to pay a premium to get the goods when you need them on that side. So we're going to be very cautious on that side. When we start to look at the equity markets, and we know a lot of pain has been felt, we're students of history, and we looked at the correction in NASDAQ and observed that it is maybe half of the correction that we held had in the past. We're students of history, and we look at how long it took equities from nineteen seventy two to to get to nineteen eight i think eighty six from a real point of view to get back to where they were. We were active prior to setting up Cheney in the Japanese markets, and if you'd bought at the high you 're still well below so we're going to take a very cautious and measured approach to the equity markets. We're not seeing obvious value yet, with the exception of the core MENA markets, where we think the combination of not just higher energy prices, but the combination of reforms, population growth, and under-owning by institutional investors, certainly post the perhaps temporary, perhaps longer-term disappearance of the Russian market, troubles in in markets like Turkey and difficulties in South Africa, the dynamics in the Mina markets look pretty compelling to us. So that's an area where we're, we've shifted our program on that side, and we'll look to, to see whether it makes sense to run a more concentrated, more narrow focus on, on that side. With respect to the private markets, from an investment point of view, we still see lots of investors who are still getting under the program of investing in private markets. It's not something that was over-owned going into this crisis, that the private markets have managed to retain better discipline when it comes to underwriting standards. We saw during the pandemic that privately financed companies received the kind of support that they needed to get through, so default rates were low. I think the asset. The wider private market asset has, uh, certainly private credit, has stood another test and will be appealing. I think that we're seeing that the shift in in the private equity markets to continuation funds and other holding onto assets for longer is already showing up, impacting the interest from investors to allocate more money on the next fund that has come sooner than expected when they've gotten less capital back. And uh, I don't feel that same kind of dynamic on the private credit side.
1: And all of this uh, comes back to the previous discussion we have around agility and flexibility, uh, being there when the time is right for various opportunities. And it speaks to a market that is very opportunistic. And and I would say at least what I've seen as an investor is that in these types of markets, uh, hedge fund types of strategies should be doing good. There, There is volatility and there's that creates opportunities for absolute return. Okay, I cannot have a session like this without talking about our favorite topic in the SBAI, fees. This is one of the areas where a group like SBAI comes in handy. So over the last decade, what have you seen around this debate and and how do you feel about the fee discussion?
2: I certainly agree with you, Paul, that SBAI is the right place to start these discussions and look to find common ground by having those discussions in a safe, non-commercial space. And then, once we've gotten to a, a degree of, of common ground, then we can go to policymakers and regulators. Because I do see a growing, almost Pavlovian response on fees, that, that they're always too high. And quite frankly, there is not enough interest in comparing and contrasting the net after fee returns, either at the strategy level or in, indeed at the manager level. So often it doesn't even get to the question as to whether we're any good at it and why should we charge that. It's just that segment of the market has higher fees even if the after-fee returns are substantially superior and certainly on a risk-adjusted basis are, are superior to alternatives. So I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done to shift the debate back to a question of value. I don't blame investors. I do think that the shift from defined benefit to defined contribution has introduced two elements. One is that in defined contribution, of course, the outcome is uncertain, but the fees are certain. So it's much easier to look at the fees today rather than taking the risk that maybe returns are, are higher or lower after fees. And the other is that in a number of jurisdictions that define the contribution programs are now mandated and are obligatory. And so governments feel that if they're forcing a individual to participate in that program, they have to be cautious on the fees. And I think there's just too many examples out there where in the savers, oftentimes very young savers, with the longest investment horizons in the world, are being forced into highly liquid highly commodified markets and are not able to participate in the more complex parts of the market or indeed take advantage of the term premium. And I think that's wrong. And I've already highlighted my view that we are heading towards a retirement crisis. And I think that's wrong. And we need to step up and, and have an honest discussion, an open discussion, and then move on to having the same with the regulators, policymakers, and indeed the media that loves to focus in on how much a particular manager is made in a given year and not looking at how much that extra return has saved the taxpayer or how literally, as I said earlier, how that has led to perhaps another policeman on the beat or another fireman or more nurses or the ability to heat rather than having to choose between heating and eating. These are real world consequences that I think we, just because they happen in a different time period, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be discussing it now. And I think we as an industry on the manager side have shied away too much from this debate and the policy and regulators have been too pavlovian And I think they've squeezed you in the middle and not given you the use the investors enough room to make that after-fee net return assessment, which at the end of the day is what really matters on this side. Now, whether I I get that uh, progress in the debate, I don't know, but I can certainly see investors that are suffering from a lack of opportunity today, and I find that unacceptable.
1: Uh, being an investor, obviously, I do realize that that fees is, or oh, are dollars out of returns. But I do hear your argument around it's all about value. It is what you get. It is uh, you get what you pay for. Now, at the end of the day, I would say uh, for us, it's uh, it's very much a question about alignment that you're paying the right price for the right strategy, and that might be sophistication you're you're paying for or access to something you cannot do yourself. But at the end of the day, alignment is. Um, is key for uh, both managers and investors. And coming back to SBAI, perfect forum to have these conversation within.
2: Paul, you're absolutely right. And we also have some great discussions within SBAI on looking at total costs rather than just the headline management and performance fees so that there's a transparency there for you as the investor and the ultimate beneficiaries to understand what they're paying. And it may not just be the headline. There can be a lot of other expenses or consequences that need to be taken into account.
1: So with that, we've been around a number of topics here and great comments from you. What would you say to allocators or managers who are currently on the fence of joining SBAI?
2: There's a number of ways I can answer this question, Paul, and not just as a founder of the Hedge Fund Standards Working Group, the Hedge Fund Standard Board, and now the SBAI. It is a great return on investment, both from a monetary side and uh, as well as a return on your time. If I just take the uh, Nordic Institutional Investor Forum that we just held in Helsinki, the uh, ratio of managers to investors was one to one. You can't pay for that in a traditional corporate driven investor forum because of the shared interest and the value that we bring to both investors and managers, a really good turnout of exactly the types of people that you want to see. For you as the investor, you won't feel like a gazelle in a pack full of lions because you'll have your peers there and you won't feel overwhelmed. By the same token, your marketing team is going to love you for sending you to to that kind of opportunity out there. By the same token, joining the various working groups gives you a great two-sided perspective on the issues and I think will lead you to be a better manager and by better understanding your prospective investors. In practical terms, your teams will get a chance for a deep and direct engagement with the very investors that you're targeting. So I think it's a great opportunity. And then finally, I think from experience, SPAI is the most effective platform to help shape the industry's future and to really create a sustainable future without any unnecessary restrictions either for you as the manager or for you as the investor and that kind of environment is going to be profitable for investors profitable for managers and I think that's a happy place that we should be working towards
1: I couldn't agree anymore it certainly have had benefits and as I mentioned in the beginning we CPP joined in 2015, and that was just because our program was fairly young when SBI was actually founded for the investment shop. But again, it has been really and a great platform to engage with, with others. And one thing that I have noted in particular also is recently with the membership growth from Asia, SBI has truly become a global organization and as such represents the industry around the world. And that is, to me, as a global investor, a really important aspect of this as well. And then, also, finally, uh, you mentioned the working groups. It has been great to see all the focus on startups or newer, new emerging managers, if you want, all the help. And, uh, and I think we see a fair number of new managers coming in. It's really giving them a kickstart. Thank you very much, Stuart. We have touched a lot of topics here, as I said, and, and great, great input, great
0: observations.
2: Thank you so much.
0: As you've just heard, the SBAI is an effective platform to help shape a sustainable future for the industry without any unnecessary restrictions for asset managers or investors. But there is still plenty more for us to do, as we work with our community to focus on areas such as responsible investing, diversity and fee transparency. To keep up to date on how we will meet these continuing challenges, don't forget to visit our website, sbai.org, and sign up to our newsletter. You can find our previous podcast episodes on topics such as culture, carbon and China on our website. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.